unfortunately, we got into a firefight. They had already set up those strategic places where they were just sort of waiting for us. Caught a burst of, of, a, of an AK-47 that was just sort of, you know, fired in our general direction. One round went straight through the side of my neck, smashed my spinal cord and paralyzed me instantly. Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. As an elite soldier serving in Afghanistan, Tobias Gutter's life was changed forever by a single bullet. The shot penetrated his neck, severing his spinal cord and leaving him paralyzed from the chin down. Toby faced the unimaginable realization that his life was changed forever. Being confined to a wheelchair with a respirator helping him breathe and requiring around the clock care by three carers. He struggled with drug abuse, mental health challenges and the ongoing temptation to pursue an assisted suicide. It's a story of resilience, strength, and hope in the face of most brutal circumstances. This man is an inspiration, a true fighter, and example to us all. This is the eventful life of Mr. Tobias Guttridge. Toby, welcome to the show, mate. Cheers, yeah, happy to be here. Really happy to be here. Good stuff, good stuff. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you get into the Special Forces? Yeah, I grew up in South Africa. I was South African born, Johannesburg. Yeah, in the 80s. Uh, and that's a different place, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, growing up then, I mean, South Africa has always been a little bit behind the times. Mm. So if you think of, if I if I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it's kind of like, I guess, growing up in the, probably the 70s or the 60s in, in the UK, something like that, it's, it's a little bit behind the mm. time. Um, so, yeah, but it was an interesting interesting childhood to say the least you know, my background is english my parents were english and they they immigrated out there in the 70s so did you did you have to fight your way through school because you were known as an english lad in a south african school yeah not so much primary uh sorry nursery school but then when i got to primary school you get to that because then you you know you're only a kid you yeah know? but then when you start getting to sort of the age of i guess 10 somewhere around there um and you start finding out who you are um yeah uh afrikaans kids didn't really like the english kids and it always came down to you know scrapping on the field mm. um and there was a few times where, yeah a few bust ups some real bust ups uh the one i remember I, I got into a scrap with an Afrikaans kid and he uh, he punched me so damn hard. Um, <laughs> but he but he um, he cracked all, all of his knuckles, you know, he broke his wrist and, he, and three of his knuckles mm. on my you know, on my face basically. Mm. And uh, yeah, obviously I went down, uh, you know, scramble, get back up, you know, you know, bust up rolling around the floor, mm. blah, 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 mm. all that. Anyway, I get back to the class and um, this is how it was because he was Afrikaans, most of the teachers were Afrikaans. You know, I, I start getting accused of breaking his hand. You know, I get <laughs> wow. accused of, you know, oh, it was my fault. Yeah. I was the sort of, you know, horrible one. I had a teacher come up to me and just in sheer disgust, you know, mm. literally talking to me like, you're just you're disgraceful how can you do that you know how can you break a kid's arm mm. and, and all this and because obviously he got rushed to a hospital or mm. whatever and uh yeah it just seemed like uh, yeah i took the full brunt of it mm. and, uh, and that must have been tough it's, it's it must tough. have been tough it was tough it was it, tough it, yeah I'm not gonna lie. and then now my mom was divorced at, well when i was a young age she was divorced three so um yeah she was bringing up Three kids by herself. She had a part. She had a partner. He was actually a lovely guy, really lovely guy, South African guy. Um, and at this stage, 
he was being he was being sent off to the uh, to the Angolan War because South Africa was busy in that, um, and he was coming back to him and praying. But um, I had a great relationship with him, really cool relationship with him. He's a sound guy, mm. really sound mm. guy. And um, yeah, my mother decided to immigrate to America. So me, and what age, were you, brother, what age were you when you went over to America? Uh, eleven. Just turned, yeah, just turned eleven. Um, so. And how many years were you out there for? About a year, okay. eighteen months. Um, so, so I turned. Yeah, I was just eleven, and my mom, single mom, three kids, me, my older brother, and my sister, and my two. Sorry, four kids. Yeah, yeah, four kids, um, and my two younger sisters. All decided, yeah, we just up sticks. But it was so quick and so just out of the blue, you mm. know, um, just picked us up and shipped us over to America. So we landed in California. Eventually, we settled in California, San Diego, mm. which lovely sounds amazing. Yeah, it yeah. does, doesn't it? Yeah. It sounds all amazing on the outside, mm. um, but immigrating to to a new country is not. Mm easy a mom with four kids yeah it's 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 tough and and we didn't have a lot of money we didn't have a lot of stuff so yeah it's not all it wasn't all like oh yeah nice big house on the beach and all that no 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 no. so what what made you take the journey going down to the the army route the special forces the sbs route i mean really interested to know why you went down that route well you know going back to my sort of bringing up in childhood and that i think it was lonely it was it was it was mega lonely for me, um, and yeah, moving around a lot. So California, there I am, new school. Uh, you know what it's like, you know, new kids yeah. stand up in front of the class, yeah. getting picked on again. Uh, kind of not picked on, but just you know that you're that social outcast. Yeah. You know, you never really know where your place is in life, yeah. and you're you're struggling to find something. Yeah, um, and then. After 18 months, my parents, well, my mom, decided then to immigrate to the UK. So we had to up six again. Wow. We came here wow. to the UK. And uh, what year are we talking here when you so learned? Now, so now I'm like 13. I'm a, yeah, I'm about 13. Okay. Uh, what does that take us to? About 97. Yeah. I mean, roughly. Yeah. Roughly. Somewhere yeah, yeah, around yeah, yeah, 1997. Yeah. Um And. Yeah, I end up going to rough council estate. My parents now, well, my mom. I keep saying my parents, but it's my mom. Mm. Uh, Whereabouts no, is that? Where, that state? It's down here, actually, in okay. Bournemouth. Okay. But we had we had no money, nothing. So my mom had to then go to you know job center, apply for benefits, yeah. you know, and we got a council house on a rough council estate, and I went to a school called Summerby Secondary School. I don't know if you ever remember that. Mm. Yeah, it was a rough school. It was probably rated one of the worst schools in the United Kingdom at yeah. the time. And and that's again where yeah, you know, you, you had to stand stand up for yourself. Yeah. And and I took a lot of a beating. You know, it was you were that outcast game, mm. outcast, outcast, social outcast. Always looking for a belonging. Yeah. You know? um, and I guess yeah, going back to your question. So this is all leading to trying to find my place yeah you know trying to find some sort of uh, community yeah would you yeah. say community well, would you say f- sort of family uh, yeah yeah mm. you know somewhere where i belong yeah i had no belonging and i mm. felt uh you know my entire childhood was just uh yeah not fitting in not mm. fitting in and then after uh must have been a year here in the uk my mom then decides, no, it's all not working. Let's immigrate back to South Africa. Oh, jeez. Wow. So then I end up immigrating back to South Africa. Can you believe it? Um, so now I'm like 14, yeah, 998, somewhere around there, 98, uh, end of 98. Mm. New school. And mm. uh, now it's high school. Um, and, you know, this whole time I'm just... Yeah, it's a very influential time in a kid's life. You know, that age from 11 to 16, mm. it's a very influential time. And the whole time I'm getting into trouble, 
when I was in England here, I started hanging out with uh, wrong crowds just because that was the social circles. Did you find you had to be tough? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so you didn't mind, tough, you didn't mind tough. getting into scraps. You didn't no, mind doing silly stuff point, at that age. By this point, scrapping was normal now. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been doing it since I was, yeah, it's, yeah, it was. Did just, you, did you find that you could have gone down the wrong path? Yeah, I was. I was going down you the wrong path. Were. I was totally going down the wrong path. I what mean, path was that? So I started doing drugs at, even at that age. Mm. I started smoking weed, mm. petty crime, mm. um, you know, stealing mopeds, you know, hanging out with these kind of boys. Um, and, you know, my mom was just, she, she couldn't really control me. She had her own stuff to be dealing with. Yeah. She had her own shit to be dealing with. Mm. I get it. Um, and and this is it, you know. I was just kind of left to grow up on my own, mm. and you, you're sort of looking for peers and that, and all you have is that to go off. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's what you go off. Mm. Um, and then yeah, I guess went back to South Africa, new school and all that, and then it just starts again, you know, that vicious cycle. So I get back to South Africa, and I'm getting a bit older now. I start getting into more trouble, um, scrapping a lot at school. Um, not even turning up at school. Were um, you waking up every day going to school thinking, oh, here we go again? Mate, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't even be asked. Yeah. I couldn't even be asked to go to school. That's the truth of it. Yeah. Um, I, I would go out at night. And South Africa, you know, it's quite easy to get hold of drugs, alcohol, yeah. stuff like that. And I, I would get absolutely blotted, yeah. mate. Smashed, uh, yeah. you know. And, and, you know, my parents don't care. I mean, I was out till four in the morning sometimes. Mm. You know, I'd get a couple of hours sleep and then it was like, yeah, do I go to school? No. Mm. Can mm. I be asked? No. Mm. Um, so, yeah, then, uh, you know, I'd go off and do whatever I need to do, sleep off the hangover and so on and so forth. I mean, mm. it got so bad, I think they, they, they brought in child services at one point mm. um, and they, you know, I had to be escorted around school because they thought I was drinking at school mm. and... I wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom by myself because mm. I thought I was, you know, bringing in alcohol and yeah, it was, it was bad. It was mm. tough. It mm. was tough. It was really tough. So by the time I was 18, I was just lost a complete, yeah, just a lost child, you know. Um, Do you yeah. remember the day that you found your place? You're like, right, I'm going to make this move and, well, and change my life it. around. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, um, you know, I'd heard about the Royal Marines and I, in South Africa and I, uh, so I started looking into them and thinking, oh, maybe maybe this is something that might be right up my street. You know, it's and and what really appealed to me was, I mean, I really just got sucked into it. To be honest, um, was that ninety nine? You know, ninety nine percent of people need not apply. You know, unless you are hard as nails, mm. don't bother. <laughs> and I was like, that's right up your street. <laughs> I was like, yeah, all right, <laughs> wicked. Yeah. You know? something you know, I can get my teeth into yeah. and and even if even if I don't at least it's gonna you know try and it might straighten me up a little bit yeah. and you know that's what I was looking for deep down um, I knew what I was doing was was a bad path I was either gonna end up in prison or dead mm. you know that's how bad it got so it was mm. just it was just I was just a write-off um so yeah they're all marines and um all these you know, and then I started hearing stories and rumors, and you know, rumors can be vicious yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. about you know how tough it is and how brutal it can be. Um, so the more and more I looked into it, I was like, "What have I got to lose? Yeah, you know, yeah. what have I got to lose? I'm gonna do this, you know." Mm. And and it started actually invigorating something mm. inside me. Good. I don't know. I just started getting a good, powerful energy yeah. from it. It was like, okay, I got some direction, I yeah. got some focus here. And I started thinking, well, I'm going to need some sort of plan here. And, and that, that was, yeah, it was good. It was the first time in my life, I actually. felt like I had a plan. Mm. Um, so I started working, um, saving up to get a flight. Um, and I was working in a bar called Shenanigans, um, which was pretty wicked, actually. Mm. Uh, so you were still in South Africa yeah, at this time, and you were Africa, you were flying back to the UK yeah, to join the Royal Marines. Yeah, yeah, and then that's where it started. I thought, 
yeah, I'm going to save up, I'm going to get a flight, yeah. and I'm just going to bomb it over here, yeah. pack my bag and do it. Well, why not? How old were you roughly at the time? 19. And States, 19, yeah. when you came back, did you come back into Bournemouth Pool area? No, no, I landed in Heathrow. Hadn't got a clue what I was doing. Um, and I thought, I'm going to go to Bristol because I thought, why not? Uh, that's that's where my parents were from. Uh, so I thought I'd go there as a landing base sort of place. I don't know. Um, and we'll try and kick it from there. Mm. Um, so I turned up there, got a, got a, like a one bedroom house. It was like a room. Let's see, size of this actually. Mm. Probably about the size, mm. you know, renting a room in, in someone's house. Um, got a job in Tesco's, started stacking shelves. Um, and I was doing the, uh, the graveyard shift. Yeah. Cause I figured I'll stack shelves during the night. So from, I think it was from like nine, nine till three in the morning. And then what I'll do is I'll train during the day. Yeah. yeah and all I needed was enough to pay, pay for the room, you know, pay my overheads and whatever, um, pay for food and then pay for like a, a shitty gym contract somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I went down to the local council gym. It wasn't anything fancy. Mm. So like David Lloyd or anything. Mm. It was just mm. a, like a, yeah, just a, Spit and sawdust, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Council thing. And uh, that's what I did. Um, and then once I actually plucked up the balls and, uh, you know, managed to, I went down to the recruitment office, yep. walked in there, and I was like, I want to join the Royal Marines, mm. you know, <laughs> trying to act all tough. And, that, and the guy just looked at me and was like, okay. Um, yeah, all right, let, let me go away and get, get my sergeant major and, he went away and the sergeant major came out, had a look at me and was like, uh, yeah, okay, can you, can you do your, you know, you, I think it was like, I don't know, was it, it was something like 20 press-ups and six, 10 pull-ups or something, mm. that bar in the recruitment <laughs> office there. And I was like, okay, cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so he smashed that out and he's like, all right, fine. And he asked me a few questions, why do you want to join and all this. And I was just putting on this massive, Tough guy, bravado thing, yeah. trying to be all macho man. Um, and that was it. He was like, all right, uh, gave him my details and went back. Uh, and then you just wait to hear, just wait to hear out. Um, and then obviously I had to, once I got the letter, um, okay, we'll want to start the process. I was, I mean, first of all, I was buzzing. Mm. I was like buzzing. I bet. I was like... Oh, I could feel the energy in me. I was like, rock and You're roll. You're calling, isn't rock it? Rock and roll. Yeah, yeah I'm here, I'm here. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing it. Um, How long were you in uh, the Royal Marines for? Um, probably about two years. Okay. Two years. I was, yeah, quite young. Mm. Um, but. Uh, and what were you doing in those two years in the Royal well, Marines? Tell me, tell me what your route was. Okay, a Afghan at the time. Yeah. Afghanistan was kicking off massively. Yeah. Through our training, you know, the, the training team were quite adamant that we were at some point going to end up in Afghanistan, no matter where you went or what you did. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was part of that group of guys in my troop where we actually wanted to go. Yeah. You know, we were like, yeah, we signed up to go to war. And, and it was just that next thing I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, I didn't join the Marines. Um, but I joined it for various reasons, I guess, but... I want, yeah, it's something I want to do. I want to experience. So when you were like there 2006, yeah, you wanted to go and fight. Yeah, exactly. You were training so, to yeah, fight, yeah, and you're I probably going to let out all your aggression from being a kid coming well, out of the you war. Know, training did that as mm. well. You know, Royal Marines training is tough. It's yeah. freaking hard. And, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah. It, is, it is nails. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's nails for a reason. Yeah. And, and the guys I was hanging around with, you know, they were the type of blokes who, yeah, they all wanted to sign up and go and, you know, go get into combat, you know, and see what it was actually really like. Mm. Um, do you remember for the first time you flew into Afghanistan? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. What year um, was that? So that was 2007. Okay. Yeah. And what was that Her feeling Her like? Going, what was that feeling like going straight into war for the first time? Uh, 
kind of surreal. Yeah, pretty surreal. I mean, you, you, you land in Sebastian. Well, I did. I don't know if everyone does, but that's where, yeah. I assume most, most of the troops land. I uh, landed into Camp Bastion. And it was, uh, yeah, pretty daunting. Pretty mm. daunting. You have to go in at night and cause just in case. So you land at night and uh, you get there and it's it's kind of surreal going through Bastion. Um, get to your accommodation where you're there and you start getting all your kits and, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of surreal. You don't mm. really believe it's happening, mm. I guess. You, you know, you're in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, and how long were you there for? So that was a six-month tour. But it, uh, I think it got extended a little bit because um, where we were out in the fobs, it was quite hard for um, uh, the guys who were taking over from us to come in. Mm. Um, getting up the... You kind of have to wait for a good window. So we ended up probably doing a bit longer, seven, maybe seven, mm. half, seven and a half months, I remember. Was, mm. But yeah, we, we were out there for a bit. And what was that tour like? Was it a violent tour? Yeah, yeah, it was really violent. It was, yeah, it? Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Yeah, we were out in the fobs quite. Long. What's the fobs? Uh, Ford operating base. Okay, give an example of what um, you had to do. Well, we were doing routine patrols. So we were trying to... Um, like show show a presence or show force in the area. Um, I mean, it's a massive thing. It, it's not just about what I was doing or our, my troop at all. You know, it all interlinks with the whole unit, yeah. the whole of 40 commando out there. You, know, you have four companies and different areas all synchronizing um, and trying to show force. And what we're doing was trying to push up the Sangin Valley. Mm. From Sangin, actual, you know, it's a town, town. From there, all the way right up the valley, and trying to sort of dominate that area up mm. to a place, a place called Kajaki Dam. Mm. Um, yeah, so most of the time we were out in just foot patrols, trying to, you know, show our presence, show our force, stop them, you know, from coming in and, and laying IEDs, and you know, these kind of improvised. Explosive devices and stuff. Um, Jeez. You mm. go out. You go out every day on patrol. And yeah, it's nerve wracking because you don't know. You you can come under contact and have actual enemy contact, or it's yeah, or a hidden bomb, a, a hidden bomb explosion, something Jeez. like that. Yeah. So um, and and it was quite frequent. You know, mm. that Sangin Valley in those sort of years where it was horrendous. You know, we found we found quite a few. I think one of the biggest ones, we found a 500-pound bomb that was under a bridge. Um, and believe me, a 500-pound bomb, that's not just a mine. That's not an anti-tank, mm. anti-personnel or an anti-tank. That's yeah. uh, that. That's something, that, you know, that's a proper mm. bomb. Mm. <laughs> that's mm. going to you know, flatten a good area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you know what you were looking for? Like you see an Afghanistan local. How would you know who's a local, who's, well, who's a farmer versus someone who's out to that's, get you? That's the problem. And then these are the tactics they were they were employing or deploying was, um, you know, act as the locals. Yeah. Because, you know, part of our mission was to try and help the locals. Yeah. And things like that. And they knew that. So they could act as the locals, act as a farmer, yeah. walking along, da, 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 go behind the building. You know, pick up a rifle, and next thing you know, yeah, you yeah, you get you start coming under fire, or or you know, set up ordnance or something because they can see where you're patrolling. Mm. Yeah, it was very very difficult. What did you do? And you're out there for seven months. Did you then fly back in, back back to the UK? What was the yeah, route? What back. was the route to get into the SBS? From South Africa, I thought this the Royal Marines were the toughest. Yeah, you know, hardest thing you could do. Yeah you know, the toughest training and all that. But then, then you sort of find, oh, there's an next level. Oh, there's an, <laughs> you know, oh, these guys are even, you know, yeah. you know even more nails. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, so I'm just getting driven, more driven and more driven. And it became like an addiction for me, you mm. know, because I found myself being successful at something. I was, I was, I was really successful at the Royal Marines. You know, I, I did really well in training. Really well in training. I was quite, suited to being a soldier it suited my personality i had the right temperament 
so, yeah, I uh, got back from Afghanistan and, you know, did a few other bits and bobs, you know, through the Marines. And then you just start learning about who the SBS are mm. and start making inquiries, start asking a few people, what's it all about? And then you start learning, oh, shucks, you know, wow. These are the creme de la creme. Yeah, now, mm. you know, this is the next. This is the next step. Mm. So start thinking, right. Did you okay. go for the whole training again? Yeah, so, so I started prepping for that. And um, I spoke to my sergeant major and he was he was like, no, you're way too inexperienced and uh, you, you're too young and all these. Things. How old were you at the time, roughly? Uh, so now, 23, okay. 22, yeah. 22. Yeah, 22, 23. Yeah. Um, and I started training. It took me about a year before I even applied for it. So mm. um, I just started training for it again. You know, and what was that training like? What? What was the As training just like? Training for the SBS. No, for the actual when they put you through their paces. Well, the training for the SBS is, I mean, selections there for a purpose. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's to weed out. You know, people who are not not obviously suited, but not just physically, mentally, um, and. You know, they, they test various different elements of of mm. of, of a human being, you yeah. know, and you just gotta you gotta yeah, you gotta meet the standards and and, and just be the right type of person. Mm. You know, it's not just about how fit you are and how physically mm. physically capable well you are. I mean that's that's just one thing really, to be honest. Mm. What happened when you then where did you go in two thousand nine? So yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I was on on deployment, and I had gone back out. Back back to Afghan. Back out to Afghan, mm. yeah, on an on a an operation. Um, unfortunately, we got into a, we got into a firefight, um, night time, and uh, yeah, it all kicked off. And uh, unfortunately, I went into a building, and they had already set up sort of strategic places where they were just sort of waiting for us. And we knew we were going to go into a firefight and um, it all just kicked off. And unfortunately, I just caught a burst of, of, a, of an AK-47 that was just sort of, you know, fired in our general direction. And one, one round went straight through the side of my neck and the other round ricocheted off the top of my helmet. Um, which would have killed me instantly, if I'm honest. Mm, but Kevlar helmet saved my life. But uh, the one just below my helmet, uh, just below my ear, sort of went straight through my neck, uh, smashed my spinal cord, um, and paralyzed me instantly from the neck down. That's all she wrote, really. It, um, yeah, um, it was lights out from there. Uh, Do you remember that moment when it, you got shot through the neck. What happened afterwards? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember a lot of what exactly happened because it was so close to to my head. Um, and the second round knocked me out cold. Um, I just slumped to the floor. Uh, so I don't really remember a lot of... There, there wasn't any... There was no... I wasn't conscious, so there was no screaming and shouting and all that um, from my side. It was just, I just literally collapsed, you know. Um, kind of think of it as like, you think of a puppet and you just cut the strings that just, you know, slumps down like a, in a ball. Um, and I was dragged out and the lads started working on me and fixing me up, trying to see if I had a pulse, uh, trying to find the wound, trying to find the the entry wound, the exit wound, so they could plug it, uh, you know, all, the, all these medical things going on. And this is in the middle of the night, it's dark, it's pitch black. Um, you know, they were trying to pack the wound with dirt, just anything, you know, trying to keep me going until the, until the uh, helos came in. It was pretty, pretty horrendous, yeah, I was not going to lie, so... But I think it was more traumatic for them than for me because I was just out cold. Um, 
And where were you, Where when, when this happened, where did they take you to? Did they fly you straight back to the UK? Uh, I went back to Bastion, um, where they sort of put me into an induced, induced coma, realised they didn't have the means to do any of the complicated surgery there. So, yeah, so they repatriated me back to the UK. Um, and I flew straight back to Queen Elizabeth Hospital up in Birmingham where they have like a massive neuro RTU. And from there I went into straight into surgery. Yeah, three, three major operations. Three, yeah, three operations. Eight hours each or something like that. Um, Were you conscious? Were you still in a induced coma no, this time? I was time? in an induced coma. Induced coma, okay. Out, yeah. Um, no, I was... Uh, at this point, they didn't even know if I was actually brain dead or not. Because, you know, I wasn't breathing for so long. Um, they thought there's probably going to be some, you know, severe brain damage from either oxygen starvation to the brain or from the actual trauma itself, you know, um, from the actual impact. So they fixed me up as best they could. Uh, and then the rest came down to just whether I was going to pull through. It was 50-50. 50-50, mate. They, they were like, they weren't too keen to pull me out of the coma because they thought, ah. you know, you know when they think it's better off to switch the machines off because they don't know if he's, if he's actually, if I'm awake or not inside. Bloody hell. Uh, could be, you could be just saying, no, it's brain dead, completely brain dead. They couldn't do an MRI. MRI scan because of all the metal and shrapnel in my head and in my neck. So there was no way of knowing whether I was actually, you know, just just breathing on a machine or if I was actually alive still inside, um, which was pretty intense. Yeah. And they yeah. were trying to make these decisions. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, my brother was the actual one who said, because they asked my family, you know, do you, do you want to wake him up or not? Um, so they had to make the call. Um, and my brother was like, yeah, I know Tobes. He's, he's, he's tough as, yeah, he's tough as it comes. Um, let's give him a chance. Let's see what happens. And, yeah, so they slowly started bringing me out of the uh, induced coma. And that's when, you know, found out my world had been turned upside down, literally upside down. Um, I was so confused when I uh, woke up because I saw all those, you know, drugs going through the system. Um, At first I thought I had been captured, you know, so all my training started kicking in. Um, All that resistance to interrogation and stuff. So I started basically doing what I was taught um, and they were trying to explain to me you know you haven't been caught but I just wasn't having it you know so um, yeah there's a lot of effing and blinding and telling them not to touch me and mm. you know all this kind of stuff but um, eventually they got my sergeant major in and he was the one who debriefed me and that's when it all started to be out of it started really coming to light yeah, it was a tough time, a I really bet. horrible time. I what was going through your mind when you found out? Shit. Literally shit. That's it. That's that's everything over. That's it. It's all. It's over now. It's done. Um, that is. That's my life. My, yeah, my career is over. My life is over. I've, I've lost everything. Um, you start questioning everything. You start questioning everything. You know, what's the purpose? You know, now what do I do? Um, do I carry on? Um, Did that go for your head? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it wasn't like uh, my main thoughts at the time. My main thought at the time was, you know, I'm alive. Yeah, that's one good thing. I'm alive. Okay, cool. I'm, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah my, I mean, the main things that were going through my mind were how much can I recover? You know, how much how much sens- sensation can I get back? Am I going to be able to eat? 
drink, uh, talk, because I had to learn to talk again. You, you had know? to learn to talk again? Yeah, I had to learn to talk again, because on a ventilator, it's totally different. You get you get like a set breath. It's right. not just breathing normally. Um, so that noise coming through now is the ventilator. Yeah, you can hear that. That's, yes. that's, that's air being pushed into my lungs. But I can't breathe by myself at all. Um, so wow. this machine has to calculate how many breaths to give me per minute to keep me, you know, to keep my blood oxygenated um, and but not over oxygen, mm. oxygenate the blood because that, that's, that's actually can be just as bad. Yeah. Um, so it's a balance. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, I, I, they didn't know if I could swallow anything like that. So we had to learn all these things again. Wow. Um, and it was a long recovery process. How long roughly? Uh, so I was in ITU, neuro ITU, three months. Yeah. Um, I mean, most of that I was in a coma. And uh, yeah, by the time I'd left, there was about four months, four months. Uh, and then I went to a spinal unit where I spent a year in hospital, a year of lying on my back, trying to learn how to talk, how to breathe. Um, just coming to terms with things, trying to trying to process it all. Uh, physio, getting my lungs back together because uh, I was very ill as well. Mm. Um, I ended up with pneumonia a couple of times. Where it was touch and go, and then trying to prepare myself to come back into the real world, which was pretty daunting. You know? Yeah, uh, that was yeah really scary. Did you have a good support network around you? If I'm honest, no. Not when I first came out of hospital. Um, I was kind of falling between the cracks. Because no one, no one had really... In the military, this injury was quite quite rare. Mm. So uh, it, it was a complicated, very complicated situation. Because... No one really knew if I was on the NHS's responsibility or still on the military's responsibility. Surely the military would see one of his soldiers and go, right, we're going to back you full tilt. You'd think so. Did they? I mean, they tried, but um, because uh, because of the Special Forces side of things, the, the, the MOD and the, and, the, and the Royal Marines and the military thought that I was being looked after by them and, and that, you know, the ASF sort of community had my back and was looking after me but i think they thought i was being looked after by the by the community in the nhs and and by the mod so i wasn't and and the whole planning and the whole um, making sure i was being looked after psychologically and my needs and did i have a, did i have a property to go to and uh, was it properly adapted and did i have the right psychological support that was all just falling apart I had nothing. I had nothing. I mean, I was, I'd moved on to camp and I was staying on a, on a military marriage quarters. And, uh, and that's when the real psychological downfall started. You know, the real downhill spiral started. Because I was stuck in this house. Um, I could still hear the helos coming in. You know, I could see the boys doing the jobs, going out on operations. Because, yeah, you know, the, the unit doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, and... And you were there in, in a wheelchair? Yeah. Looking out the just window? staring out the window. Oh, and, and I just... I just felt myself just degrading mentally. Yeah. Um, and before I knew it, I mean, I was staring out the window for probably eight hours at a time, which to me felt like five minutes. You yeah. Know? But I was just staring, you know. Um, I just couldn't come to terms with it. And it was just breaking me down, you know, breaking me down. I was all prepped to be, you know, fighting physically and yeah. being able to, you know, conquer, I guess, battles in front of me. Yeah. But this psychological battle, this was a whole new playing field. Yeah. Like a whole new game for me. And I wasn't prepared for it in any way, shape. Were all sorts of thoughts going through your head on? Yeah, this is where it gets yeah. dark. It gets really, really dark. Um, 
I started relying on, on medication more and more and more. Um, you know, the stronger medications, blaming it on pain, but it wasn't pain. And, you know, the morphine. Yeah. You know, you start blaming, oh, yeah, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. It's just you can't deal with. You just don't want to be in in the reality. You don't want to be, you want to be somewhere else. So you start taking, like, diazepam. Yeah. All these hardcore sedatives, staying in bed and just lying there sleeping for, for long hours of the day staring into no man's land um, and just going what's the point yeah well what the hell is the point of this yeah. you know I can't eat I have someone feeding me dressing me washing me um, fuck this yeah I'm not made for this yeah I'm yeah this isn't for me um, and I can still feel it now you know yeah. I still feel it now that that thought of, well, Tobes, let's let's just let's pull the plug, man. Let's do it. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of. I guess I am. You know, death is. Yeah, you can only die once. Let's just get it over with, um, because this is just humiliating. It's it's you know it's undignified and it's horrible. I've got nothing to live for. So yeah. I started then seriously considering it and I started thinking how I can do it properly, yeah. professionally. Um, and I started looking into ways and speaking to surgeons and uh, psychologists and w what I was allowed to do legally. Because um, obviously assisted suicide is illegal in the yeah. United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so I started, obviously everyone knows about going out to Switzerland and all that. Yeah. And the more I looked into it, the more I found out that there's a simpler way of doing this. And um, there is a bit, of a, a bit of a loophole there if you start it. I don't want to get into the legalities of it, but because I'm actually assisted completely 100% to breathe on a machine, um, I have like, um, you know, you have like um, the right to refuse medical treatment. Yeah, yeah. That's one of your human rights in this yeah. country. Um, and they class this ventilator as medical treatment. Right, okay. So it's a bit of a loophole there where I, I have the right to refuse medical treatment and I can refuse to actually keep being on this ventilator. And the only dignified way they could do that would be to sedate me and then turn the machine off and uh, you know I'm legally allowed to do that within my rights so I started looking at doing that and speaking to psychologists and I just needed to make sure I'm not you know clinically depressed or clinically insane and all these things and yeah I got to the point where it was all it was all teed up I was good to go you know? Bloody hell. Um, but through all this you know mm. I was Ugh, you're always fighting the idea because you don't want to die. Mm. I don't want to die. Um, so you have these two, two battles going on in your head. Um, and, yeah, I ended up in the Priory, Priory Hospital in Southampton, you know, which is like a um, you know, hospital for people with sort of psychological problems. To put it mildly. What year were you there? Uh, 2014. Okay. Yeah. So this is five years after the accident. About two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. five years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, early early 2014. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I was still, everything was still teed up um, for me to sort of pull the plug on this ventilator and all that. Um, but I was in this priory hospital and... I would sit in their gardens and I met a fantastic psychotherapist who I started working with. And, um, I mean, to cut a long story short, he just said, Tobes, you know, I just want you to think of three things that uh, remind you of who you are. And, and what you've 
what you're about, what you're made of. And um, I want you to write them down. And I want you to look at that every time you feel yourself staring at something, yeah. you know, oblivious out the window. So I started doing that every day. And it just resonated with me. Um, was that a turning point for you? Yeah, that was my turning point. It was, point. was it? Okay. That was my massive turning point, you know. Yeah. That was my T-junction in Brilliant. life. Um, so it took five years. Yeah. Bloody hell. Of, of, of just the worst five years of my fucking yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's hell. Yeah. And then there's hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, they say, you know, like they say, there's different circles of hell. Yeah. There's different levels. Yeah. I'd say that was pretty far in it. You yeah. Know? Um, in 2012, um, I got offered the opportunity to carry the Olympic torch mm. the, for the, you know, for the British mm. Olympics. And 2012, I was in such a bad, bad, bad place. Before I did it, I got so high. I was so intoxicated. Um, I can't even really remember doing it. Um, I remember getting on the bus, um, getting off the bus. Someone, someone gave me like a beer. I downed a beer, but I was so on so many other drugs. I don't remember doing any of it. Mm. And then I came back, and may I, I just passed out. And it was only, it was only a couple of days later that someone actually reminded me that I did it. And that's terrible because mm. it's such an amazing honor and such an amazing achievement to be to be given that opportunity mm. and and yeah I missed it I missed it because I was just in such a bad mental state yeah forget all that combat and uh, physical arduous toughness mm. that that is pure hell you know there's no escape from it yeah. you know there's no respite from it. And yeah, that'll you'll learn quickly who you are and what you what you really are. Yeah, um, that's the test of real steel, right mm. there. Um, so yeah, that was the turning point in my life, mm. and uh, I decided from then on I'm gonna make the most of my life, and I'm gonna fucking go balls to the walls. I don't care. Um, yeah, I'm gonna yes, make mate. the most of it. Yes, mate. Love yeah. it. Love it. So just explain to the listeners like now, we're, we're opposite each other. Is it just from your neck down? Yeah, paralyzed from the neck down. So literally from, so, uh, if you want to get like a little bit medical yeah. quickly, um, I'm paralyzed the C2. So yeah. the cervical spine is, you, got, you know, it goes down in numbers. Yeah. So the highest is, you know, C1 which is where basically your spine reaches your skull. Okay. And I'm C2. Wow. C2, so, so I'm just, just So just down. below yeah. maybe your, your I throat. Can, I can feel just below the chin. Wow. Just below your chin. Yeah. Just below there. So if you think of yeah, just above this track here. Yeah. yeah. Where the ventilator's coming out now. Yeah. Okay. That's where it stops. And that ventilator's on 24-7. 24-7. Yeah, 24-7. Um, and you've got full-time... Carer or carers? Full-time carers, two at all times. One ITU nurse and one carer, 24-7. 24-7, um, which comes with its challenges, believe me. Um, what, are yeah. those what are those challenges for you? Well, I mean, there's no privacy. Yeah. Privacy um, privacy goes out the window, I'm afraid. Um, and, yeah, I mean, being in this situation, yeah, your dignity goes out the window. Um, and these are things you have to learn to deal with. Yeah. Um, and they're hard things to deal yeah, with. They yeah. really are. Especially at the beginning, you know, those first five years. It gets easier with time, just mm. like anything. Um, but yeah, it was really, really tough. Mm. Really tough. And, and I've had to learn how to live a different life. And then just take little parts of who I am and try and just hold on to those little moments, yeah. you know, yeah, as best you can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Tobes, you've gone through, you've gone through hell and back. Did you ever think about, am I ever going to find love again? I never thought I'd ever find love in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you, I've always been a lone rider. I always like to think of myself as a, a lone wolf, you know, um, 
bit of a maverick. But yeah, no, after my injury, I mean, I, I, I still think to this day, who could love this? You know, who could love me? Who could love someone in this situation? Uh, it would take someone pretty fucking remarkable. Um, but I did. I found someone and yeah what can i say uh she she's the she's the love of my life she uh she inspires me she she keeps me going she gets me up in the morning i only have to look at her and that's what i mean you know you, you i feel happy to be here and i'm happy that i've made the choices i've made because yeah. i would never have got to meet her and um yeah she's a she's a beautiful soul um, what's her name savannah She's, um, and we've recently just got engaged. Um, yes, mate. Yeah, <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Um, which is another big step for me, you know. Yeah. Um, engagement is, yeah, something again I never thought would, would be, uh, you know, on the cards for me. But but here I am, you know. So you never know where you're going to end up. In yeah. Life. But um, she was born in South Africa. Oh, wow. Um, but she, she immigrated when she was uh, really young. Mm. Um so we, we had a lot in common and, and yeah, we just clicked and it just, it just grew into something special. And, um, yeah, I'm thankful for that every day of my life. Wow, mate. Um, she, she is a phenomenal lady. Yeah. Um, and I truly mean that you know, mm. to put up with, with how difficult it is with my life, you know, having people around me all the time, carers and nurses and staff and medical uh, appointments and everything. And she just sticks by me, you know. Um, Happy that is a big shout out to Savannah. Massive shout out to her. So yeah, Quality. Yeah. I'm happy for you, mate. Yeah. Tell me about the BBC program you were on the other night. It's called The Speed Shop. Um, a mate of mine, he runs a um, like a motorbike, custom motorbike crop shop on on Paul Key. Fantastic place, wicked place. Um, if you if you've ever get the chance mm. to get down there. Um, Pookie, the S-bomb. Um, anyway, they've started a show BBC on BBC Two called The Speed Shop. And uh, I was on an episode where Titch, he's, a, he's an ex-colleague of mine. We worked together in the, uh, in the SF world. And he's come out now and started doing this. And he wanted to build me a custom sidecar. So I wanted to get back on mm. motorbikes and wanted to still be involved in the mm. motorbikes. And he, yeah, built me the sidecar, which is custom made for my injury. Uh, you know, it's got a place for ventilator. It's, um, yeah, it's all fully kitted out. Brilliant. And, and it's, you know, the spray job on it is, is beautiful. Um, it's, it's a Royal Enfield motorbike, uh, Royal Enfield interceptor. And it's just a, it's just a fantastic thing, but the show is um, all about how Titch is just helping people, veterans get back uh, into into society and helping them enjoy life. Yeah. Um, so, big shout out there to Titch Cormac and Speed Shop because uh, it is an awesome show, and yeah, if you get the chance. We'll do. I'll Give pop it down there. Absolutely. Yeah, eight o'clock Sunday nights. Eight o'clock. I'm on it. So moving forwards, then, what is your main focus as we speak today? I mean, my main focus for me on a personal level is just to get as much enjoyment out of life as I can, yeah, mate. Uh, and just appreciate it for 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 what it is. You know, um, take every day as a blessing. You've only got a. You've only got a. You know finite amount of days and uh i was just lucky so lucky to be given a second chance yeah now how many people get given a second yeah. chance you yeah. know at life yeah. i mean generally truly get a second chance at life um so to waste that would just be well be insulting wouldn't mm. it you mm. know um so i like to think of it as that and that, that that's me on a personal level to try and appreciate things and, and just look at people and learn learn as much as I can and be as happy as I can mm. and and that's me on a personal level um, but then there's an, uh, another big big aspiration of mine and that is to learn 
how to help others from this, you know, from this injury and, and how to make, how, how to pass on my, my knowledge, I guess. Yeah, how to uh, take what I've learned and help others so that they don't have to go through it yeah. as bad as I've been through yeah. it, you know, um, and, and be a force for good and try and actually uh, give back and, and, yeah, try and make this world a better place. Yeah. Well, why not, you know? Um, Tell me about bravery and also let's, let's touch on the book as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> so when I was in the Priory and... You know, coming out of the Priory uh, and figuring out how I wanted to get back and, and what I wanted to do and tie it in with my journey and my story, um, I figured, you know what, why not try, you know, build a brand that stands for something that incorporates my passions, you know, in the sports that I, I love doing or love doing, um, but ultimately just has a wicked backstory and message, you know, and tie that in with the sort of commercial brand and see if we can marry the two up so that people can be proud of a brand and, and wear a brand that actually stands for something. Mm. Actually has a bit more to it. Yeah. You know, it's bit, you know something, something special. And where um, can they find the brand Bravery? So Bravery... Uh, is online uh we have a facebook page bravery organization uh instagram massive one um which is at bravery underscore uk uh plug in the brand massive yeah, yeah. keep plugging mate keep plugging <laughs> you know, it's, all about, it's all about socials of course. and then you know we've got our website which is www.bravery.org.uk lovely and that's where you can get yeah you can you can find out about me, the story. Um, you can pre-order the book. Um, it's got our entire range on there, which I'm hoping is going to grow massively. It will. Um, and yeah, yeah, like I said, it's it's a, an extreme sports brand. You know, li it's a lifestyle brand. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Uh, with the, I see your hoodie on now. It's a, that's a, a quality yeah, hoodie. Yeah, that yeah, it's quality. amazing. It's, it is good stuff. It is quality. Mm. That's one of the things you know. I take a lot of pride from mm. what I've learned in the military. Yeah, and that's about you know quality standards. Yeah, and incorporate that into the brand as yeah. well. So it is a wicked brand, but ultimately, it's a lifestyle brand with the cool message Lovely. that anyone can wear. You know, that's been through anything you know it doesn't have to be military it's not a military brand yeah. it's it's a it's a it's a lifestyle brand that anyone who's actually and gives you great focus as well yeah yeah and i hope it'll give other people focus yeah as well. yeah and the book tell me about the book when's it coming out well I can't wait for it you know the book is um it's due to come out on the 9th of june um it's been delayed already because uh yeah, it's just got to it's, it's got to be right. Mm. And I, I, you know, I've got to um, make sure that I haven't said anything that I, I shouldn't <laughs> say. Um, I think you're allowed to say anything you want, Tyler. Yeah, you'd think so, but yeah. uh, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's coming out on the ninth of ninth of June. But you can pre-order it now on Waterstones, Amazon. Uh, just go onto those. Yeah, Amazon or Waterstone and, and uh, search for Toby Gutridge or the book's called Never Will I Die, which is actually <laughs> pretty cool because that's saying me and my mates used to use when we were up to no good when we yeah. were kids. You know, we'd always say... Never Will I Die. Yeah. Love yeah, that. Yeah, and then we go and do something pretty gnarly yeah. and pretty crazy. <laughs> or if we knew we were probably going to get caught, yeah, we were just going to take it on the chin. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so... And then obviously with the military and... My injury, I thought, what a great name for, yeah, for, it's a, a, cracking for a title name, isn't of it? a book, which is just, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a book pretty much, yeah, just tells everything we've been talking about, but more in detail. Yeah. Um, and how now I'm running my own business. And, Good for you, and, mate. Um, trying my best yeah. to uh, inspire others by 
following their passions, no matter how bad it gets, you know, life is not a straight line. Yeah. It's either you go up, down, up. Yeah. From A to B, it's it's never just yeah. smooth sailing, you know, and um, you just got to ride ride the highs and, and endure the lows. Yeah. Um, but that's life, you mm. know. And I'm happy to be there. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Mate, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, like, I, I'm, I feel in awe and honour to have you here. No, no, I really mean that. Yeah. And you've got to be the, men, the most mentally toughest person I've ever come across in my life. I really appreciate that mm. because a lot of people say that, but I don't, I don't actually truly believe believe it in me. I just think, oh, I'm just you know doing my own thing. But yeah, I generally actually believe you there, Dodge. Mm. It's an honour, mate. Absolute honour. Toby, loved having you here. We're going to stay in touch for the rest of our lives. I know yeah. that. And um, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're Thank a good you man. So. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Good man.